I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13 through 16. And the title that I gave Sunday morning, I don't know if I gave it or not, but it should be this, looking at 2012. How's that? The year that's in front of us, the year that we're in now as a church, as a body of believers coming together. What lies ahead? We don't know. Well, what as a picture of the church, like as I examine myself, I examine you and I think of what's going on and what's working, maybe what isn't working, what's lacking, what needs to be strengthened. You look at all this parts of the church and what do we need more of or what do we need to be encouraged in or what do we need to really bring forth? What should we focus on this coming year? As a pastor, what do I believe that God is laying on my heart for us to deal with, learn more about, or focus on? And I mentioned several things. Sonny, let me read this scripture first, and we'll come back to that. Verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are in 2011, I mean which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And that is to walk with Him and live the life He gives you. That is a high call. Very few do it, but it's what's given to us. Verse 15, Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded. And if in anything you be otherwise minded, God will reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Of course, the focus here was we press forward. We don't live in the past. We may be ashamed and regret what's happened, but you can't live in shame and you can't live in regret. You have to press forward. And if shame and regret are weaknesses in people's lives so that they can't keep hold of that plow, then you need to deal with it. So we look at things that I believe are lying ahead of us or things that I believe God wants us to deal with as we approach this coming year. I mentioned several things last week. One was personal interaction that I don't know. The more I think about it, the more I talk about it or study about it, the more I learn about personal interaction in a church, the more I realize it's seldom ever done biblically. I mean, we hear about it, we memorize scriptures and love one another and submit yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord and esteem others and honor others and all of that. But it so seldom seems to happen so that you look at the church and we're really quite independent. We really don't feel responsible for each other. We don't feel responsible to... You see a brother in a fault, you don't feel like it's your place to go to them and all of that. Yet the Bible says you should. There's a real need there for us to see that we are our brother's keeper in Genesis 4, where he talks about that, that we really are our brother's keeper, that God holds us not only to, this is the wrong word to use, to police the body, but to keep an eye on it, but to care for it. Every joint means that every time two Christians are together, that's a joining together, it's a joint and the Bible clearly says in Ephesians 4 that that which holds the church together is not a skillful pastor and lots of good programs, but it's that which every joint supplies. Each one of us has a contribution we're required and responsible to make to each other. And we've probably heard that before. But how much it's done, how much that's put into practice, it doesn't seem like as much as it should be. We still deal with too many problems that we shouldn't have to deal with. We still have to fix things that shouldn't be broken. They should not be. After, if you've been here for 20 years and you're still floundering in a lot of things and people have watched you flounder, nobody's talked to you about it, it's a flaw in our relationship with each other. I don't care how much study, how much talk of faith and the deeper anything you've got, it comes down to a whole lot of it is the first great commandment is love God. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, there's a lot of things you wouldn't permit yourself to do because your conscience bears witness that it's wrong. And yet when you see another brother do things that you think is wrong or you know is wrong, which well, ain't my problem, but really it is. It does become your problem. If one suffers, 
all suffer. If one is rejoicing, we're all glad about it. So that's going to be a major, well, at least you're going to get ham- uh, spoken to a bit about that in this coming year because it's been largely left out as being put in practice in the local assembly. Second thing we mentioned Sunday was doctrinal correctness. No matter how much people say, oh, I don't like all that doctrine, doctrine is the foundation of what makes you stable. Man's teaching is you're following the teachings or the whims of a man. But doctrine is when you go to the Bible and you begin to point, like the word sound doctrine used several times in Scripture, or at least three times. And sound doctrine was so important that Paul told Timothy, labor in that. That's how you escape the seducing spirits, doctrines of demons, being tossed to and fro, the angels of light and wolves in sheep's clothes. That's how you not only identify that, but you escape the effect of error is knowing what you believe. And I don't care if people are, oh, they're so legal. No, we're not trying to be legalistic. We're just trying to be right. And the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and His right ways, that which is right by His standard, everything you need, God said in this life, will be added to you. Thirdly, is faith. You say, well, we've heard that. We have heard it a lot. But is it more people are walking away from the way they used to live than at any time I've known. It's like we've heard it, and yet we're slipping back into, well, you know, the aspirin bottle wasn't so bad after all, or... Whatever it is, it's a deficiency in your faith. Aspirin might not be, but there are a lot of things that we should be believing God for that we're not. Maybe you're learning to do without and you've submitted yourself or allowed yourself to be overtaken by a spirit of poverty. And you shouldn't because God has given you something to escape that. And you shouldn't allow yourself to be put under because God has put you over. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. 8,000 promises. They're ours. They glorify God. He wants us to claim them and bring them about. And a fourth thing was he wants us to set higher goals for ourselves. That can be interpreted a lot of different ways. But basically, setting a higher goal for yourself is this. I look at myself as I examine myself in Scripture, and I can do better. I can do better. I need to quit giving myself so much room to do things that I feel bad about. I need to get a better grip on myself and my relationship to God, which we'll close with. But fifthly, that's where we ended last time, is to see in the body of Christ what your gift or calling is or find out what your gift is or what particular calling you have. I think everybody knows that they've heard of the gifts of the Spirit, and everybody, everybody, editorially, and everybody knows that there's more to life than what you're experiencing. There's more of your role in a local assembly than what you have been. Because if you stop and think about it, for the most part, church consists of us leaving our homes, going to a building, and watching the performance, singing a few hymns, greeting each other, listening to a sermon, and going home without much conviction about how that word should affect my life. I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. God didn't bring us here to be spectators. He brought us here to change us and to lead us into a deeper life that glorifies Him. That's why we're here. As I said in point four, you need to see that that belongs to you and that call is on your life to be different, be like Him. And that you do have something from God, all of us do. There is something from God that each of us has that contributes to the greater well-being of the whole. Otherwise, if every joint didn't have something that contributes to the well-being of the body, then gifts are only for certain people in certain times. I'm not talking tonight about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. I'm talking about Romans 12, if you'll turn there, Romans chapter 12, because he mentioned several gifts here. And as I said, we ended here, and I want to go back here and finish one particular point I didn't finish Sunday. Now, Sunday, we begin in verse 6 of Romans 12. He said, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, grace, of course, being that which God does. 
having gifts then differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether, and then he mentions these, prophecy, in verse 7, he tells us specifically to wait on ministry, which we'll deal with in just a moment, which is our message for tonight. Secondly, or your teaching, to wait on your teaching. How many of you know that all of us should be able teachers? That we should all be able to rightly divide the word. The average typical preacher today goes to a seminary to learn not only things that you don't just normally learn because there are not many people that can teach you things that you could learn from men who are well-educated, but you also learn the word and probably a more exact meaning of what it is and it's dated and all the little details about it to make you more efficient as a preacher. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of times, though, I think in teaching, you learn a system of teaching, and it's a ministerial thing which you get because you went to school, and if you haven't had training or teaching, then you probably can't be a teacher. A lot of people believe that. I don't know that I really fully endorse that, though I do know that the gift of teaching, that charisma that comes from God, a grace gift, is more than just the average intellect. I mean, you can sit in here for 30 years and you can learn a whole lot about Scripture and you can get it out in one way or another, maybe not skillful. And the skill part is the anointing part, that special anointing that God gives to some people to impart truth. But we're all able to, if you can lead somebody to the Lord, then you have to be able to put two or three Scriptures together to make a point. And everybody in here should be able to do that. You should be able to sit down anywhere and tell anybody why you believe and what the Bible says about being saved. You should be able to do that with the Word of God. Remember what he said, study to show yourself approved a workman who needeth not to be ashamed, and so forth. So teaching, he says, wait on your teaching. Don't try to make it work. Let it come to you. Let it come. Let the situation arise. I love eagerness, and I love diligence, and I love zeal. But sometimes in your zeal to get in a pulpit or get you a, a banjo or something, and I'm going to do this, and you do it on your time and not God's, and it doesn't turn out well. But when you sense something is going on, and I believe, you know, I think I'd kind of like to do this or that, or I'd just wait on the Lord. Let Him bring it about. He'll bring it about. I was asked once about how all the things that I'm doing came in my life. And I don't think, as God is my witness, I don't think I ever tried to do anything. The only thing I ever tried to do was quit and get out of the ministry because I never did feel sufficient for this. I don't know that I do now. But it was something that God gave me to do that I could do. And I could sit around in a conversation with somebody else and I can't get my words put together right. There's a difference in an anointing and not being anointed. There's times and places that anointing will come upon you, and you didn't know it was coming, but it comes and wham, out of your mouth flows treasures, because that's what God does. But you've got to wait on it. You've got to let it come to pass. Because he also said in Romans 12, in verse 8, wait on your exhortation. I think that's what I am, an exhorter. An exhorter comes from the same family of words that the comforter, what we call the Holy Ghost, comes from. One who's called alongside to help. Jesus said, when he comes, he will show you. He will guide you. He will help you. That's the specific ministry of the Holy Spirit. And a word similar applied to human beings is the word exhorter or exhortations. The words that bring forth the comfort and edification and so forth. Then the other thing he mentioned in Romans chapter 8 was giving. I think giving is what makes everything work anyway. It's how we pay our bills. It's how we function. And some people have a way of obtaining money legally and righteously, having a heart to want to share and give and do that without any show and, and do it discreetly and waiting on the right way to do it so that we didn't know where it came from and know that, wow, that's nice. And you look around, there's a lot of needs in a church that any of us can meet. But there's some people that have this special gifting for giving and money in the church, able to uh, balance their own accounts in their own life. They're not in debt. They know how to handle money. That's a good thing. 
He talks about ruling. Another word here was in Romans 12, 8 is ruling. And the word ruling is a, a Greek word which means simply to stand before, to stand in front. It's a picture of what a father does, one who rules his household well. Ruling there doesn't mean with force. We rule by consent. And we rule because people are willing to accept you as a ruler because you're not abusive and hateful and all of that. But they recognize, you know, dad is, is trying hard. He's a good man. He's not perfect. And he knows he's supposed to do this, and he's trying to do it. And so I honor that. I respect effort. I respect people trying. A man who stands in front of a church, as I am tonight, is not a perfect man. You know that, and I know that. We're okay with that, but we're not supposed to remain imperfect. Our goal is a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Or as Paul said in Colossians 1, that I may present every man perfect in Christ. And so one who rules is simply one who stands before from God on the behalf of a ruler could be a, a youth leader, somebody that taking somebody on a trip down to another country as we've had here. There's an authority that goes with that. And that authority is what defines the rule or the right to rule or the right to have authority. Another one he said was showing mercy with cheerfulness. And there's a lot of people that I've known who can do that. There's people who can come up and say, hello, how you doing? And you think, leave me alone. There's other people come up and say, hey, how you doing? You think, well, I'm glad to see you. It's just something about God's giftings. We should all show mercy with cheerfulness. All of us can. We should. There are those who do it well and who really have this thing about wanting to bring comfort and compassion to other people. A phone call, a letter, a note. I mean, just this tenderness of heart, sweetness of spirit. And they like to do that, and God's given them that. And that's one of the things that helps a church be like it should be. It was just have these little contributions made by members to each other. And remember, every gift, every gift has God's stamp of approval on it. And it's not for you, it's for others. He uses you. And these gifts are to affect other people in a good way. Now, we stopped at verse 7 last week on the word ministry in Romans 12. Ministry. The word ministry comes from our word for deacon, diakonia. I knew you'd be impressed with that. It's a word which has to do with service, one who serves. And that's what it is. Now, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. A diakonia, or a ministry, is defined like this in our Greek books. Of service in general, including all forms of Christian ministering, tending to the good of the Christian body. It's what we do that makes it better. Now, anybody, everybody to some degree, can minister. Now, whether you do or not, you may have it in your mind that you can't do that. Your thinking is flawed in this area because who am I? I'm not, you know, I'm just a nobody. Well, what does he say in verse 11 of Ephesians 4? That God gave into the church first apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And then he goes to verse 12. For what? Three things. For the perfecting of the saints, which will lead to the ministering, and it results in the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, this is what's supposed to happen. If God puts ministry in the church, if He gives us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, if He gives a certain kind of an anointing or an equipping to ordinary human beings to do things that ordinary human beings can't do because God's anointing is not ordinary, but He calls that unction or that anointing to flow, then the effect of that is defined in verse 12. Whatever they do, put together, it results in three things. It results in the perfecting of the saints, which will result in the work of ministering, 
for the building up of Shelbyville Christian Assembly or any other Christian Assembly anywhere in the country. Let's take the word perfecting. Now, for the perfecting of the saints, the word perfecting, again, throws us off because we cannot accept the fact that we are being perfected or that we're perfect. We have a hard time with that. We probably have a hard time with that because we know how we live and we know that others see our imperfections. So we have a hard time even acting perfect. It's like a prisoner going to prison. There's no sense acting like you didn't do it because they all know you did it. There are no phonies in prison. And I said that one time when I was over there speaking in LaGrange, and they kind of laughed because everybody knows what you are. They know what you did. But in the church, perfecting is a Greek word. I pronounce it katartismos, and it's a word which has to be with putting in right order, putting things in right working order. Now, I want you to put your finger wherever you are in Ephesians 4 there, and I want you to look in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Galatians 6 and verse 1. Now, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, he says, If any of you see a brother overtaken in a fault, well, that would be some kind of error or something that will lead to a greater error in a person's life. If you saw a brother or a sister doing something that is going to eventually get worse and lead to something worse, say a young man is flirtatious. Say he likes to flirt with the girls. Oh, it's innocent. We're in church. But he likes to, you know, <laughs> and be whatever you call cool. And one of you that are his friend, his brother in the Lord, if not a close friend, you're a brother, and you see that, and you see it enough to know that this is a pattern in his life that could lead to an affair or something worse later on in his life. Now, if you see a brother overtaken in a fault, or this fault is getting bigger and bigger, the Bible says you should restore him. Is that what it says? Now, he might say, what business is it of yours? And you can say, because we're in the same church, hearing the same word, being led in the same direction, whether we're going or not, we're being led in the same direction. I am given by Scripture the right to do this. Now, I know there's always going to be a little policeman want to give out tickets and all of that and arrest you, but I'm talking about an honest attempt at helping somebody avoid a problem later on in your life, in his life or her life. Or it could be the girl, the flirtatious girl, or the boy that likes to get in his car and turn his music up. You get in his car and his, or, or an adult, kahoopa-wapa, kahoopa-wapa, and you're thinking, you know, the effect of that music on us leads us back into the ways of the world because we use that music when we're driving around to feel something. It's all about something that's not good for us. So you tell your brother, that's not good. You shouldn't listen to that. And nine times out of ten, they will say, well, what business is it of yours? And say, well, the Bible says we are our brother's keeper. Brother Hamilton said we were. He ain't the law. No, he isn't. And he's not what we base everything on. He's not the standard I live by. But if the word was anointed, you should have some sort of an effect by it. You don't have to believe what I say. You know that. But if what I said is confirmed and you get a conviction in your heart, about it, then God's speaking to you about something. And you're concerned about the way this brother, this sister's acting or dressing or who they're running around with, where they're going, or what they yelled out at a ball game the other night or what they're watching. And you know this isn't good, so God leans on your heart to go to them because this verse of Scripture in Galatians 6.1, you go to them. How many times has this ever happened in a church? It has. Probably more times than we've known, but... It doesn't happen very often. If I went up to somebody and I said, Brother, can I talk to you? Yeah. I don't think you're treating these girls right. I don't think the way you're acting around these girls is healthy and wholesome or scriptural or right. I think the people are noticing this, and I think you ought to stop it. Now, if he says, well, it's none of your business, there's times in Matthew 18 and you take two brothers with you. I talked to him, but he wouldn't hear it. 
And if he will then hear you, what does it say? You have gained your brother. So we don't have to deal with it anymore. We keep an eye on it because we are to keep an eye on each other. You know, in a right way. Or the girl, and you know, she's got her eyes on this unsaved boy, and you know where that leads. If you don't know where that leads, you're in a fog, a deep, dense fog. Your eyes are plastered over and you can't see. You can't hang with fire and not smell like smoke. It's a tarnish on your reputation and on your testimony. You have little effect. Your Christian life has little influence on anybody because you're violating some of the basic things in there. So we see that happening and we go to them. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Now, they may not be saved. And so you might have to say, if you're bold enough, have you ever turned a corner with the Lord? Have you ever been born again? Because something seems to be wrong here. Now, they can look at you and say, well, what makes you so right? Now, let's read that verse 1 again. If you see a brother overtaken in a fault, just anybody go to him. What does it say? You who are spiritual. You don't do that. You're trying. You're endeavoring to keep the unity of the faith and so forth. You're trying to live the right. And uh, you're bothered. You're concerned. The spiritual life on the inside of you given to you by the Lord is affected by the pattern of life in a brother or a sister, and it grieves you. And you go to them because you care. Not that you're perfect, but that you care. And let me tell you something, caring about somebody else, having compassion for somebody else, and being responsible to each other is something that God puts in a man's heart or a woman's heart. And so the Bible says you restore such a one. Now, the word restore is the same as our word perfecting. This is katatitso, and the other one is katatitsmos. I knew you'd like that. But they basically are the same thing. And they mean to put together, to bring together. In Mark chapter 1 and verse 19, I mentioned just a moment ago in Mark 1, the Bible says that the men who became apostles were at the seashore or in the boat mending their nets. Matthew 4 says that too. They were mending their nets. That word mending is the same as the word restore. It's the same as the word perfecting. So here's the bigger picture in Ephesians 4 concerning what we're leading up to next. God puts ministry in the church, special anointings and all that, puts men in the church to mend problems, to bring things together that are not the way that they should be, and to fix things that are out of order. It's defined as to make fully ready, perfecting, to make fully ready, like mending your nets so that they're ready for the next night's fish or perfecting the saints when we can't get along and we're just existing together in the room, but we're not really together. It's what leadership does. It's the word that comes out that begins to put things in right order. It's the perfecting of the saints so that we can get mended or put back together and so we can do the things that we're called to do and be the way we're supposed to be. In classical Greek, this word katartizo spoke of the refitting a ship or setting a bone. The word had to do with setting bone. It was, it was broke. It doesn't work well like that. It's uncomfortable. It brings pain. It's not right. And so somebody who knows how to do it sets the bone back. A ship is not right. Somebody who knows how to do it fixes it. A net is broken. Fish will go through the hole in the net. So you got to know how to mend your nets. you got to take time to do it. It's sometimes, I would imagine, tedious because the tear might be great. You might have to fix a whole bunch of things and spend quite a bit of time mending your net. But it's yours to do. And I think that's the point he makes in Ephesians 4 and verse 12. <clears throat> For the perfecting of the saints... Not the ain'ts, the saints. God chose imperfect people to be his people, to glorify him and so forth. And these imperfect people that he brought to him, he brings them together in a local assembly. We call it a body of believers. 
and the perfecting, the mending, the restoration begins. Word upon word, line upon line, piece upon piece, and you say it again, and you say it again. Like Peter said, not that you have not heard this, but I speak it again because it's so important to get this. And you keep saying things that you know are right. It's hard to go talk about some of the other things that you'd like to know more about when you can't even manage the little simple things. And you have to get these things right. So God puts ministry in the church, first of all, to perfect the saints, to restore us, and to bring us to the way we should be. The word for work is simply a deed, an act that you have done. The work of ministry. Back in Ephesians 4, that's the next thing. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministering. Again, I think we all have in our mind that a minister is somebody that's been schooled somewhere, has been licensed, qualified, and accepted by an institution, and they stand behind his learning, and he represents them, and as he goes to represent the Lord. And that's generally the way it is, so we don't think of this being for us. We don't think of this being for us, but apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers aren't just for a few people. They're for the body, till we, till we all come. Not till they come, but till we, us, all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge in verse 13 and all of that. But this word for ministry here has to do with that action. It's something done. It's what you do in response to what God has said. It can be a lot of things. Ministering. You could minister the Word. You can lead a Bible study. You don't have to be a pastor. How many of you know you can lead a Bible study without being a pastor? You just get the ball started. Some people are good at just getting a conversation started, and they can just watch. They have that ability. That's a form of ministering. Helping somebody who doesn't feel good, you go and minister to them. You go share the word with somebody who's down and out. You give some money. So it's all a way of ministering. It's something you do because God has got your attention, captured your heart, and you see yourself as able to do something in the church to make it better than it was, at least for your part in it. Turn to First Peter chapter 3, if you will. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9. I think this word is used here. Finally, be you all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, tenderhearted, doesn't mean pitiful like we think of pitiful, and be courteous, be friendly and kind and, and patient, not rendering evil for evil nor railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that we have been called that we should inherit a blessing. See, this defines ministering, loving a person. You minister to them. You help people. There's people who have need, and you do things for people. Whatever you're inspired to do as a person, whatever you're inspired to do, whatever action you take, that is because you sense that this is something that God has shown us, something that we should do, I see some needs and I see a problem or I see this, so I'm going to be in some way helpful and useful to the Lord in doing things like that. I don't have to be a preacher. I don't have to be an evangelist. I don't have to go on the road. These people teach us about being of service to each other. What did God say about the angels, his angels, in the end of Hebrews chapter 1? The angels are defined as ministering spirits. Remember that? Same word what we have over here in Ephesians 4.12. They are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. That's us. Well, what do they do? Well, they set us down and preach to us. <laughs> now open your Bible, please. No. What do angels do? It's not a subject we know an immense amount about. But what do angels do? They're a ministering spirit. Do they not protect us? He shall give his angels charge concerning you, and they shall keep you in all your ways. Do they not somehow bring an element of inspiration to us where two or more gather together? Jesus said he was there, but also he said about the head covering, he said that we should do this because the angels are present. 
Well, there's something about that and what they do that apparently they don't do if we don't do what we're supposed to do. Or you won't get anything from it. But they're there. The Bible says that. So angels do a lot of things. Maybe it's information. They went many times to announce something that God was going to do. Sometimes they carried out God's plan and brought judgment. The word ministering defines in various ways what they do. And we don't do that like they do, but what we do is minister in the church. A word in season. There's so many things I could say, like giving to somebody. You can minister to somebody that way. You help them out. Nobody has to know it. You didn't want anybody to know it, but you did it because you wanted to do your part in some way relieving their problems and to help them. And you did that. But you need to make sure that what you're doing and what you're calling ministry, you need to make sure that it's something that God has inspired, not something you're just trying to do so I can do something. In 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul said to Timothy, he said to make full proof of your ministry. Now, Timothy had a different ministry than you all have. His role was in a pastoral sense, that he was to lead people. Paul warned him. He said, Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. You're going to have to be bold. If people look at you as somebody who is scared, then your youth is going to keep your youngness is going to keep you from being effective with these people. So he's talking to Timothy like that. But what he writes, we can apply to us about ministering in the way that we become useful to the Lord. For example, turn to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. Hebrews 6 and verse 10. Years ago, when I would write to somebody, when you sign your name, sometimes you write a little verse. And if somebody had done something and, and you were writing a thank you note to them, I would often write Hebrews 6.10 at the end of that letter where I would sign my name. And it says this, For God is not so unrighteous to forget your work and the labor of love which you have shown toward His name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You not only have labored in the Lord, you not only have sought out the will of God in what He would have you do, but you have done it. You have done it. Now, when it comes to ministering in the sense that I want to deal with later on, back to Galatians 6, 1 again, our concern for each other, for helping those that are in a bind and those who need help, those who are making mistakes, messing up. Early on, you can fix these things better than when they get older and they get broken because some things broken later on in life are hard to fix. They are hard to fix. They are, seem to me to be very hard. I mean, when you're at a certain age and you mess up bad, it's a labor of love. But there's nothing broken that God can't fix. That's got to be in there or you'll never try. There's nothing so broke or so damaged that God can't fix it. Now, do you believe that he can fix it? Well, then this will affect whether you minister to that person or not. If I asked you tonight, how many of you believe you're your brother's keeper? That you do have in this church a responsibility for each other. You can't watch everybody. You can't. But the Bible does say if you see a brother that has a need, that's Hebrews 3, and you shut up your bowels or your heart of compassion from that brother, how's the love of God dwell in you? Everybody might not see another person's need, but he showed it to you. And it has to do with helping a person. Well, that's a form of ministering to that person, isn't it? See, it doesn't have to be some sophisticated pulpit ministry with some kind of licensed work behind it. It's simply a call, a leaning, an anointing, something that God does in your life in maybe some minor insignificant way. You're the one that wrote the note that turned a life around. Your concern and your care about somebody, your thoughtfulness, and releasing that thoughtfulness to somebody else, minister to that person in a way that affects their life. And if you hadn't done what you did, they might not have been affected like that. I think that if we see ourselves as our brother's keeper, that I am responsible for you and you are responsible to me. 
and that we are not free to do whatever we want, say what we want, wear what we want, act like we want. We're not trying to keep an eye on each other, see who you can catch, how many did you catch this week? Not like that. But just the fact that we are in a body, we want everybody to go to heaven. I'm going to tell you something. It isn't easy to live this life. It's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to go astray. There's no excuse for it. There are some conversations we should never have to have because somebody just didn't listen a long time ago and somebody who saw things not doing right should have said something about it. Oh, it ain't my problem. I ain't got no problem doing it. Yes, you do too. Yes, you do. How many of you, if you saw me come out of a bar with somebody other than Sister Hamilton, how many of you would say something to me personally? Don't raise your hand because I don't want to be thinking about you. But I wonder how many people really would feel the right to approach me. Brother, you came out of a bar. That ain't your wife. I saw you there last night. Look on my phone. <laughs> that ain't right. You can't do that. Now, I'm asking you to repent. And if you won't repent, I'm going to go tell a couple of brothers. And if you won't repent then, what does he say? Tell it to who? The whole church. And that's how serious this is with God. You better believe you have a responsibility to me and me to you, but we've never seen it working. We've been in church our whole lives, me, the Christian church I grew up in, typical of any church, just a different method of doing things. But we hired us a preacher. We had a pulpit committee that looked for one. We went out and hired one. He did his practice sermon before us, and we liked what we heard, and we hired him. We hired him to do all the functioning of the church while we come and watched, and he sought our approval. He really was a hireling because we paid him, and he came because of the benefits that we gave him. He didn't come because we were such nice-looking people, but he got a nice parsonage. He got this much vacation. He got hospitalization plan. He got this. He got a few perks because we wanted to lure him in. And so his ministry, if I might say so, is somewhat fabricated. It's not something that's really genuine because his heart is not in the benefiting of each other necessarily. I mean, he will. But he's doing what he was trained to do. It's not that he can't. I'm just saying from my experience, where I've been in my life, what I've seen. I would much rather sit under some old country bumpkin that had a genuine anointing that every time I listened to him, praise God. I'd rather listen to somebody yelling in a microphone and make it wet, just dripping with mouth water. But touching my spirit than I would for somebody eloquent just touching my soul, my intellect, and my emotions. And, oh, that was so good. Oh, I just love to hear him preach. Oh, I just love to hear him pray. I'd much rather have somebody that sends me home convicted Amen. than I would somebody that sends me home. That was so good. You can go home and say that's so good, and that's okay. You know that. But I'm just saying that there's a difference in true ministering because in a church we hire somebody to do this for us. And we don't see that we're supposed to do this to each other. But that's what the Bible teaches. I shouldn't have to go out there and deal with everything out there in the church. You should do a lot of these things yourself. If you see your brother taking fault, you go to him. Don't call me and say, Brother Hamilton, because well, what if I said, okay, now I want you to go to that person and talk. Uh-uh. What if he gets mad? What if he does? It's better for him to cry now than to cry later. It's better for you to cry now than for him to cry later. What if I told you hell is an awful place? And the worst words a man will ever hear in his lifetime, before eternity, the worst words, maybe at eternity, the worst words you'll ever hear are these words, depart from me, you workers of self-will and iniquity. That's the worst thing you could ever hear. And it seems to me that it could have all been avoided. And I'm sure there's going to be people that enter into that place who at that day will only wish that somebody would have crawled over glass to get to them to shake the foolishness out of them. 
Oh, let him touch the tip of my tongue. Remember that one? Lazarus and the rich man. Everything changes on the other side. But it could have been affected on this side. Sometimes that's why we go to people is because we care. It's the going that is an act of ministry. It's the tenderness you have or the judgment that you have to give. You have to call an ace an ace and a spade a spade. That's part of being honest and straightforward. Paul said, I warn every man. He tells us in the church to warn the unruly, didn't he? It's not just a pulpit message. It's what we do. You know, when he says for you to keep yourself in the love of God, that's got to motivate everything you do. And your care and your love and your concern for each other. And, and you see the foolishness going on and the lack of spiritual things in a person's life. God puts it on your heart to go talk to these people and to do something about it. Because the third thing he mentions here is to edify the body. The word means to build up. You know who the building up of the body whom God gives it to to do that? You and I. Let me tell you that again. The edifying or the building up, the encouragement in the body is not something that a pastor himself can do by himself. It's what we do as the effect of the teaching. For the perfecting of the saints so that they might minister to this goal, to the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Does your Bible say that? Well, what's the first word in verse 13? The first four words, till... We all come. Now, would you agree with me tonight that it takes verse 12 to get verse 13? And that it takes verse 11 to get verse 12? You start with verse 11, that's just God's part. God's part is what He does to man. Man does verse 12. Men who are recipients of this do and benefit and become, verse 13, till we all come. You and me, till we all come to the unity of the faith unto a what? A perfect man. You know what the word perfect man means? Complete. We have arrived. This is what brings us to completeness. The Bible even says that Jesus was perfected. But just simply mean he finished his goal. He finished his course. He did what the Lord gave him to do. And all God's program for us is leading us to a place to measure the stature of the fullness of Christ and so forth. That's where we're headed. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. And he defines that as a measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then the next verse describes what I've been saying. The next couple of verses after that, where he talks about we be no longer like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And he says that, verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is ahead, even Christ. And then we'll get verse 16 when we get into the series. But notice in verse 16, just in passing, you can think about it, from whom the whole body, is that us? Not some of us, not a few of us, but the whole bunch of us. We don't leave anybody out. If there's an uncomely part dragging his feet, you should have a care for that part. He said, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, maketh the increase of itself. Back to edifying again. It's what makes us become what we are. It's not the preacher. It's not somebody who's written books and made a million tapes and is world-renowned. It's you and me responding to the Word with our care for each other. That which every joint supplies is what makes a church strong. When a church isn't strong, when a church falls apart and is so easily affected, disrupted, it's because something's wrong here with each other. Would you agree? You might have come to hear a speaker. Oh, we're coming here, brother. Oh, we want to say, brother. You know, brother, what about brother whoever? Brother Hamilton, brother anybody. What do you do when they're gone? If you just fell dead right here tonight, just fell dead right here. Hammer, dead, right there. Would you be here next week? What would you do if the person spoken in my place didn't do it the way I did? I don't know about that. Well, what are you here for? Why are you here? What God bring you here for? Shelbyville is not vacation land. 
people all over the world don't come to Shelbyville. Why are you here? Are you here because the Lord brought you here? You've got a responsibility to each other here. I don't know if I liked him or not. He didn't ask you if you liked him. He said you relate to him. They may not like you either, but he didn't ask them if they liked you. He said you've got to relate. Every joint has something to offer. And if they don't offer it, the body is still fragmented. It's just a bunch of spectators. It's going nowhere. And given the right time, they don't like what, they quit. Have seen it my whole life. That's one of the things I want to look forward to this year to deal with. And let us see how important it is that we do this, that we be what we're supposed to be. When the Bible talks about ministry gifts, one of those, the gifting is a deacon in a church. Back in Romans chapter 12 and verse 7, our word ministry, this word up here that we had on there earlier, ministry, it's the word for deacon. And we know what deacons are in the church. They take up the offering. You know what the early church deacons did? See, it started out like this. We're talking about ministering and these gifts. God brought a lot of people together that had never known anything about Christianity. He blessed them and they grew quickly and the Word of God spread and they were excited about it. And what happened was that everything grew. The church was adding daily. Three or 4,000 people were coming into the, a small area and they didn't have big building to meet in so they met in homes. They had elders over all these homes. They were all shepherds over little flocks, little bitty groups. And once in a while, once every month or so when something special happened, they'd all go out of town like Acts 20 and they'd meet outside of the city where there was plenty of room and everybody could sit there and they'd talk to all of them. But they got so busy in the early church that people lost their jobs didn't have money. They couldn't support themselves. So a lot of men, remember, they sold their land, sold their possessions, and brought the money to the apostles so that these people could have their needs met. They sold what they worked hard to get so people that couldn't make it could make it now. It's like having the same care for one another that Paul wrote about. Well, it came to the place where the apostles at Jerusalem in Acts 6... We're getting so busy waiting on these tables and listening to these people. Well, I didn't get mine, and they got, well, we're not as important as that. And wait a minute, whoa, 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 time out. So the apostles, they got these guys together. He said to the whole church, look amongst you all. It wasn't me that did it. He said, you all look amongst yourself for several men who have honest report and send them to us, and we will make servers out of them, and they will do what we shouldn't have to do. It's not a preacher's job to do all that. So they sought these men out in Acts chapter 6. He said, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. It's not necessary. It shouldn't be for us to have to go do all the ministering in the church. Somebody doesn't feel good, they call the preacher. I have to go. Somebody has a need, the preacher has to go take care of their need. Somebody has a problem, you have to go talk to that problem, take care of their problem. How many of you know I shouldn't have to do all that? There might be an occasion, but the problem is we're so used that the preacher doing all, we won't accept somebody else, a loving brother or sister, we won't even accept them. Uh-uh, I want him. Well, he goes on to say, in verse 3, Wherefore, brethren, look out from among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and then all those other guys. The first two are mentioned again here shortly. You don't know what happened to, to these men? Men full of the Holy Ghost, eloquent, whatever they were. They had to listen to people argue. I mean, they had to come down to the level of, okay, what's your problem? In a nice way. So what is your problem here? And well, okay, let's see if we can fix that. All right, what do we do? And they would spend much of their day in little things that you and I would say, man, we shouldn't have to do that. But it was an early church. It was new. They didn't know how to do a lot of things yet. So the most spiritual men amongst them became the men who came down to where they were and just ministered to them wisdom and solving their problems. And the ones that did it well, the ones who did it with a good attitude and loving the people, for example, Stephen. 
I think it was in chapter 7, the very next chapter. You know, Stephen was the man who preached about Jesus and they stoned him in chapter 7. He was the one when he died calling upon the Lord to lay their coats at the feet of Paul who watched this whole thing and was struck by this man Stephen. He didn't fall apart. God could use him. He wouldn't fall apart. He didn't say, God, don't hurt me. He just simply knew that, that he was saying the truth. The truth is going to cost him his life. He was glad to say it. And he went to heaven. Look in chapter 8, please. Chapter 8, verse 5. Here's another one. Philip. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. I thought he was just a, a deacon. Well, he was. He started out as a deacon. Listen to me. He proved himself there as willing to do that. If he didn't do anything else, he did that. And now he's a preacher. Actually, he's an evangelist. And he goes to this city and says in verse 6, Philip spake. And these people saw demons being cast out. Miracles came to pass. Verse 8, there was much joy in that city. How many of you know this is an anointing? Because this witch doctor couldn't do it. And he wanted to buy the gift. And this same Philip at the end of this chapter, if you'll go towards the end, there's verse 26, The angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south upon the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is the desert. That's what the angel told him. So he was headed that way. And as he went that way, he met that Ethiopian in verse 27, that eunuch. And he was reading in Isaiah, and he didn't know what it meant. But Philip, verse 29, it says, And the Spirit said unto him, Philip, go near and join yourself to his chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. And he said to him, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I understand except somebody teach me? So Philip began to teach him. And the man got saved, got baptized in the water. And it says at the end of that chapter there, Verse 39, And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. And the eunuch saw him no more. And Philip was seen in another town, not far from there, preaching. How many of you believe he's a special type of person? But at one time, he was just a loving man. He still was, waiting on tables. He started there. He didn't complain about it. He waited on tables. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to leave early before a service. You know, you're still standing around talking, and I wanted to go something else I wanted to do and I had to leave and tell a brother who had a key, would you lock up night? Yeah, go ahead. No problem. Just willing to do it. Didn't have to say, uh, could I please? No. He just, yeah, I got it. You go ahead and do what you're doing. That's a servant. A guy I used to know and travel with some, he had a servant's heart too. I remember one day I was outside a, a day before I was come down here and teach. And he came over and said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to mow my grass. Said, oh, he said, let me mow. You go in there and study. Now, I like that. He didn't do it every week. It'd been nice if he did, but <laughs> I want to help you do what you're doing. I appreciated that. I'm not looking for somebody to come and do that now. I'm only saying that because that was something that happened then. And I really appreciated that. This is what it means to serve, to have a responsibility to serve and to do things right. The way God wants you to do it. And in Romans 12, in finishing that, he said, And let love be without dissimulation, without hypocrisy. Do what you do because you love people, not because you're trying to gain some kind of brownie points. Trying to make a name for yourself. Just do what you do out of love. Do it humbly, kindly, and as much as you can without drawing attention to what you did. Do it because God inspires you to do it. Love one another. Care for one another. Seek the well-being of one another. It's over and over and over in the New Testament. It's always each other. Even the fact that those men that were wealthy sow what they had so that the people that were broke and destitute could have something. Christianity cost both sides everything. Family disowned them. Now they couldn't work. People that had money said, we'll take care of you. And they gave it to the apostles. And the apostles said, you men that are honest and full of faith in the Holy Ghost, you take care of this. And they did. The Bible said the church grew. The church grew. Now, 
we're coming down to the end of this thing about edifying of the body of Christ and building ourselves up. I want you to turn in closing to Romans 15. Romans 15 and verse 1. We then that are strong. Are you strong? Don't answer it because somebody might look at you. Are you spiritual? Well, this is one was addressed to those who are spiritual. This is addressed to those that are strong. He said, those of you that are strong ought to bear the infirmities or the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. Does your Bible say that? Look at the chapter before that, 14 and verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith we may edify one another. I challenge you, if you read your Bible every day, you'd be surprised if you read the epistles how much it talks about relationships. We do have responsibility. And in closing, I'd like to say that the last thing, I said there were six points. You might not have remembered that, but six things for this year. And the other was a conscious, convicted, personal walk with God for all of us. Now, it'd be different from the other one, which I said, you just do better than you've been doing. I'm talking here about your personal relationship with God, living a convicted life, losing your fear of what others think or what somebody might say if you do what's right, and having it in your heart to walk with God and to serve Him because there is nobody else worthy of that but God. And to know that everybody that God loves and God has called is your brother and your sister and that you do have a responsibility to each other. It's worth praying over and praying about. Amen. Amen.